Welcome one and all to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. All of the regulars will be handling the forces controlling your reception. Traditional heavy hitters may not be used as they cause strife. The usual suspects are available. Paul, Lisa, Andrew, Ben, Toby, Andy, Warren, Sandy and Martin. Warren and Martin have been assigned. Hello, Warren. How are you? Doing? Hello, Martin. Are you being haunted at all this week? Oh goodness, yes. What you do to me? What I do for for homework? Um, yes. So we have. This week decided that we'd like to talk about a show which is very popular in certain circles and is kind of seen as the pinnacle of that kind of telly, really, whatever that kind of telly is. And that's a series from the uh, late 70s and early 80s called Sapphire and Steel. And this is where the classification thing becomes interesting mm-hmm. because originally it was, it was um, pitched as a children's programme. Mm. Well, you can uh, see that in the first story, can't you? Yeah, it is, it yeah. is. It has a children's uh, vibe. Vibe. However, yes. by the time you, if you're expecting that for the second story, you're going to be mightily surprised. Right. But I, even the first one, I, I can't imagine going. Well, yes. Or, what have you got, PJ? Well, I had an idea. <laughs> yes. So Sapphire and Steel is about two supernatural agents, really, aren't they? They're never really explained what they are, but whenever time goes a bit wonky, these two and their mates turn up to put it right. You get this ominous voice at the beginning of the programme that talks about them being assigned or anything, but doesn't necessarily ever explain what it is, apart from being portentous and very shouty. And... Um, <laughs> So, yes, Sapphire and Steel, uh, starring David McCallum, the uh, the man from Uncle. The man who can turn his head inside out. The Invisible Man, and, the of, course, invisible and man. of course, Ducky for many years on NCIS. And, uh, sorry, be... did you say Ducky? Ducky, that's his character. Yes. Oh, sorry, du- I, I've du- never seen NCIS. Du- uh, du- du- all, I can hear is, all I can see is Dick Hello, Henry Ducky. in the background. <laughs> yes, no, no. Um, yes, he's, uh, he's his nickname. But uh, ah. there's, there's a lovely moment, actually, in a very early episode of NCIS where someone says, oh, what, what did... Because you've known him a long time. What did Ducky look like when he was younger? And he goes, oh, he looked a bit like Ilya Koryakin. Off my <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's marvellous. Which is a quite a little bit meta. You know? Yes. I mean, yes. NCIS is one of those police procedurals that runs for 20 years and can get very, very samey, but occasionally it has these these slightly witty moments. And, of course, uh, Joanna Lumley hot off the new Avengers with suddenly long hair. I remember watching Sapphire and Steel when I was but a lad of 15 <laughs> and being very impressed by Joanna Lumley, but, but also being slightly boggled by the amount of hair she suddenly seemed to have. Yeah, I, I, I love Joanna. I, I, like a lot of people, I, I have this love affair with Joanna Lumley. It's mm. just, it's her in general. It's, it's her height, her beauty. And as Sapphire, she, she encapsulated a heck yes, of a lot of... I thought we should clarify that she's Sapphire and, and David McCallum. Yes, Steel. It's Steel, yes. it's not well, the other Sapphire, way being the, the, the jewel of beauty, isn't it? And Steel mm. being the cold, hard, yes. resilient individual. I mean, the only thing I knew David McCallum from was um, I, I hadn't seen any man from Uncle. I was no. nine then, and I hadn't yes. seen any man from Uncle, and I knew nothing of it. Mm. Uh, are you from the Invisible Man? The Invisible Man, yes. That, that oh, we love the Invisible Man. It, it was, you know, when you're a kid and you're watching a show and you really love it, yeah. and it suddenly stops and you don't understand things like cancellation or mid-season replacements or anything like that and you just think why are there no more invisible man Mm. and they made 13 of them and it's a bit like there's another show like that planet of the apes which was on every sunday i was enjoying it it suddenly stopped never came back and you think what is it because invisible man sort of begat the gemini man which was 
Equal rubbish, which also yes. disappeared. Uh, but I liked the Invisible Man. I, th- I thought I, I got very excited by the Clay Corporation and, and that, that thing with the rubber masks, even though you know it's preposterous. <laughs> yes. It seems to be that era of, 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 of weird things. I mean, we had Logan's run as well, didn't we? Well, there's a weirdness about the Invisible Man. There's a weirdness about he's walking around these Starkies, isn't he? Yes, he's, he's he is. All he his is, all yeah. his crime solving is done with his knackers out, basically. <laughs> so, if he's, so if he suddenly gets visible again, it's going to be my. There's a moment. Let's David, David McAllen, the naturist. <laughs> Let's hope it's cold out. Do you know if you watch the ITC Invisible Man from the fifties, which is actually mm-hmm. quite a fun series, it's the one with, uh, Debbie Watling turns up in and actually has the invisible man playing the invisible man because he's real they actually make a point of explaining that his clothes were made invisible with him and he's always wearing Ah, clothes a man of decency when he's hanging around with debbie wattling in the 50s (laughs) because people would have had that connection excuse me a second there's a naked man walking around with that little girl (laughs) move the the clock forward 20 years Mm. to naughty norma from Mm. um, danger uxb yeah everything she learned she learned from an invisible man (laughs) exactly she learnt from an invisible man. Naughty girl. But but they, these are all side issues. But getting back to Sapphire and Steel. <laughs> Sapphire and Steel turns up as this mid-evening thriller series twice a week. I think it's... Is it eight o'clock, or wasn't it? It was eight o'clock, as far yeah. as I can remember. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It turns up in, in the middle of, of your evening schedule. On it was a weird placing. It was a really weird placing. It was a really mainstream placing. On some level, it's a bit like Doctor Who. It looks very studio-bound. It looks quite cheap on some level. I, I See, I beg to differ with you on that. That set... I've always marvelled at the set. Oh, the, the, the the, absolutely. Station. But what I mean is, it's it most of the story. Oh, it's all studio about, in, yeah. in one studio set. It might be a glorious studio set, but yeah. it's one set. You've not no, no. got. They're not globe trotting. They're not. You build one gorgeous set and investigate every nook and cranny yeah. of it. But it looks like it's 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 videotape. It's studio bound. On some level, it shouldn't work. It should be a bit like the Tomorrow People. It should be a bit like Doctor Who. It should look a bit cheesy, and yet somehow it there's be something slow and clunky. Something about the writing. Something about the direction. Something about the music. Something about the performances. They all take it terribly seriously, and suddenly this is grown up telly. It grows legs and it pelts across the studio at a hell of a rate because it takes. I think it's because it, it does the earworm thing doesn't it and gets inside your head and mm. it takes things like nursery rhymes ghost mm. stories almost Agatha Christie murder plots because I, I see them both as an Agatha Christie characters to be cer- to well it's, a, it's a, if you think about what uh, Stephen Moffat did when he was in charge of Doctor he would take something ordinary seeming and make it very sinister and I feel yeah. that is almost like the bastard grandchild of Sapphire and Steel I mean Mark Gattis again would be writing much the same kind of stuff from experiencing this at the same age we were yeah. it, it gets into your head sapphire and steel now there are six stories if you want to call them assignments i mean they don't have individual titles do they they there's the sort of creepy farmhouse one then there's the railway station one there's yeah. the strange pod on the roof one there's the photographs one, there's the murder mystery one, and then there's the garage one, the petrol station one, yeah. isn't there? And those are the six. Of those six, I personally feel that one absolutely is head and shoulders above the others in terms of quality, and I am going to hold my hand up and say that's the one I've watched for us to talk about today, which is the one in the station. And I am going to stand right by you and say I am on my platform, and um, I mainly watched that one. I come to Mm. that one because it still gives me nightmares. And yes, last night I had a nightmare. Oh, God. And every time I watch that particular thing, it Mm. gives me a nightmare. It always has as a child. And I find that the more unnerving of the lot. Mm. I really do. See, I would say... We'll we'll briefly talk about the other five. Uh, So the opening one is basically... it's There's two children, aren't there, in a farmhouse, and their parents have disappeared, and that kind of makes it feel like things like children of the stones it actually feels like children's television 
for for its run of episodes. Yes, I mean it's still obviously got a very grown up twist, but it it feels targeted at a, a younger audience. And it's also going for that thing that that's embedded in childhood, which is the nursery rhyme, isn't it? Yes, and the fear of parents going away, and all all those childhood issues get yeah. thrown into that one. And it's a very good thing. It's it's the only one I actually had on videotape when you could buy the cassettes. Gosh, you know, it's one of no, those. I, oh, I didn't I didn't go for that. No, I I, mm. I went for the hell. Hell, hell, handcart. <laughs> I went for yeah. the full soldier whistling job. <laughs> it was. Ju- I don't know whether it was just that I. It, it was either not available for long. I know the first one got released, and then I bought that immediately. And then for some reason, mm. I never saw another one released on VHS. And then for whatever reason, the second one is the the, the soldiers on the platform, which. Uh, we'll come back to the third one. I think I remember watching you know, on original transmission and going, "A, this is that's the one with when Sapphire has the kind of strange samurai look." And, oh, yes, yeah, and it has a lot of. It's I think it's the only one that has any location filming, and it's a lot of it's filmed on the roof of <laughs> on the roof of ATV towers. ATV towers is which one it was, yeah, and a um, swan and a swan being flapping around a bit. And it has well, it has a lot to do with well vegetarianism, really, doesn't it? Yeah, meat meat eating and all that kind of thing. That seems to be the thrust of it. Is that meat eating bad? Oh, look what happened. So that episode happens, and there's a kind of break, and then this the photograph one comes back. Now the photograph one oh, did photograph. disturb a generation. And yes. I, I still maintain that actually watching that particular episode still freaks me out. I still, even to this day, when I see sort of blurry faces in a photograph, I immediately, <laughs> my mind immediately goes to Sapphire and Steel, you know. Yeah. And there is there's a kind of strangeness to that, which is the there's a terrible moment where somebody's burned alive inside a photograph. That's terrifying because then you suddenly realise and you look at the photographs on your sideboard or on your mm. mantelpiece and you go, hold on a moment. Mm. And you're looking at the screen, you look back. And as a child, you're looking going, that person can destroy entire worlds. Mm. I can never exist. No. And and it's become... the, the That's the thing about PJ. Mm. If he's going to go full left field... Mm. It's going to be with an extremely vulnerable threat, mm. and the vulnerability never becomes more obvious mm. than when, when he sets fire to that poor woman in the photograph, and yeah. she's just trapped. Is that the one also where the, the people are the children appear in like paper form? Or is that that's right? And she goes yes. to uh, Sapphire goes to hug one, mm. and it literally turns to paper. Them. That's yeah. right. That also has the famous faceless person because he's just a blob in the photograph he he has no features he's always got his back to the picture isn't he Mm. or he's in the background but you never see the face until they turn but it does it does end on the slightly preposterous note of you must never allow yourself to have your picture taken ever again which is uh, because he's waiting inside the photographs and as a notion you think oh you're gonna have good luck with that mate (laughs) (laughs) well there's a thing about saffron steel that i didn't realize until last night because I, I watched a few bits mm. of the um, the first one as well. Yeah. They have a predilection with ships. Mm. Because if you think, uh, the first story, they've just come from dealing with an incident on the Mari Celeste. Ah. And at the end of the photographic one, they trap it in, or it's a spoiler coming up, but mm. uh, they trap it within a kaleidoscope. Mm. And they there's a ship going down mm. in this area, and it's going to be encased in ice. And... There's always mentions of sort of ships, as if they're, mm. as if that's some kind of a lot of the big mysteries though of, of that time were weren't they? The, a lot of the the mysteries that that were about ships. I mean, yeah. if you if you buy any of those books from that era, it seems to be full of ships that were found empty or lost or things lost at sea. I mean, we were still quite obsessed with the Bermuda Triangle at that stage. I seem to recall as well. There's a lot of that stuff going on. Now, P.J. Hammond, the writer, uh, skips the next one, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, he, um, it got a little too much for him, I think, trying mm. to get together the storylines. And um, the sto- it gets called Dr. McDee Must Die, and I mm. hate that title because mm. I've always written for Saffron Steel my own titles, and I mm. call that Consomme of Death. Ah, because I just love the idea that they they can open and trigger a mm. point for time to bleed through yeah. by having an event, having mm. a, a dinner party, but set in the 1920s. But mm. everything has to be a real historical value, from right. right down to the cutlery, the outfits, mm. to the wireless set. 
uh-huh. playing in the background, isn't there? Um, mm. It's a lovely story. It's it's by um, two stalwarts, really, isn't it? Because it's it's by he's um, Don Horton. Don Horton, that's right. Done a little bit of treatment on it, mm-hmm. and we have Anthony Reid doing a bit of treatment mm. on it as well. Now, and both of them. Um, absolute stalwarts of seventies yeah. writing. I mean, this is the the fascinating thing. I mean, PJ Hammond as well. I mean, PJ. What you can always spot a PJ episode of Z Car. I mean, they've, they've all come from shows like Z Cars. <laughs> well, he was the script editor. For there a, are very uh, creepy haunted house episodes of Z Cars. Really, occasionally, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, he obviously he wanted to do this. He he was he was entrusted with the three parter, wasn't he? Mm. For one of the major characters being killed in the color years. Of Zed Cars, mm. um, Ritual and Legacy, and I can't remember the name of the first yeah. episode, but he did a three-parter yeah. in which I'm not going to say which character, but one of the main CID characters is shot right. dead in the first episode. Yeah, he was he was script editor. Now, you, I never see him as wanting to stay in one place at one mm. time, but he was script editor from 69 to 70 mm. for Zed Cars. But yet he, although he would, I always knew him as a, as I was growing up as a sort of science fiction fantasy writer, mm. but yet his stock in trade was police drama. Actually, mm. so things like Dixon and Doc Green, mm. Zed Cars, Midsummer Night Murders. He did the Sweeney. Mm. He did Torchwood, didn't he? he? Did a couple of episodes of Torchwood. Mm. Sort of he rediscovered. Did, <laughs> yeah, he did thirty three yeah. episodes of Zed Cars yeah. and thirty nine episodes of The Bill. Wow! Um, and I always remember actually going off on a tangent with The mm. Bill. He always had a wonderful way of bringing the unexpected in. And there, there mm. was this storyline where people were renovating their house mm. and they find something weird in the sitting room mm. and you don't see it. And it's all shot from the perspective of whatever they found is mm. looking at them. So every time the, the officers came in and saw it for the first time, they mm. were taken by shock. And it's not until you get to, and he's built up and built up and built up until you mm. get to the advert break mm. where the pathologist comes in, that you find out that these people have removed the wall and there's two skeletons staring. <laughs> and that is pure PJ because yeah. you wouldn't see that from a bog standard sort of what I, I think he, I think he did a similar trick in one of the Z Cars episodes as well, actually. It's, it's interesting that, that he obviously had a predilection for old, dilapidated, ruined houses. He, he, yeah. He, it seems to be a, a rich vein for him for storytelling. Well, it's, it's, it's a story thing. It's almost the Nigel Neal, isn't it? Mm. It's, it where Nigel Neal had a predilection for for legend and mm. for um, ghost stories. Mm. I think he works very well with... He could write a series where a little mm. old man sits around the fire and mm. just tells you ghost stories yeah. or tells you weird stories of things that mm. go on. He's that kind of guy. He loves yeah. to get embroiled. His characters do things in an everyday setting. Then, for no reason whatsoever, this total left field comes in, mm. but we accept it as normal. Mm. And he carries it off quite well. He carries it off really well. He usually gives really good conclusions and explanations for things. But getting back to the worlds of the supernatural, which <laughs> Sorry, were obviously yes. an interest to him, the final Sapphire and Steel, of course, is the one where they get trapped in into interworld. A room with a view. and uh, Which is actually set in a petrol station sort of <laughs> diner. <laughs> It's all expensive, no expensive. But that's a fascinating place because it actually manages to make somewhere that's so mundane really quite sinister and and a terrible place to spend eternity, I think. (laughs) Yes. And for various reasons of franchise changes and everything like that, that's basically where Sapphire and Steel are left. Now, there are peripheral characters. There is the Mercurial, although he's not called Mercury, there is the Mercurial (laughs) (laughs) Silver who turns up. Uh, David Collins, yes. And, of course, Lead turns up. Yeah, Val Pringle. You know where Val Pringle's from? Go on. Devil Rides Out. Ah, okay. Where the, the, the huge entity appears in the room and they say, don't look at his eyes, don't look at ah. his eyes. That's um, a mid-20-year-old Val Pringle. That's oh, well, him. There you go. So we shouldn't be looking at his eyes. Shouldn't be looking at his eyes. But he's such a happy, jovial character. Mm. Yeah, I, I love... The juxtaposition of the characters, because mm. if you take David Collins's, he's a he's an operative, isn't he? Mm. And I think Steel looks down on the him, other semi-regular, really. But yeah. uh, but obviously, Sapphire Silver and Steel is is in the title sequence, so he should be an equal. <laughs> it's just well, his skills well, are. No, I don't think Steel different. would let him be an equal. He he finds him frivolous, doesn't mm. he? 
Finds well, they have different nice. skills, don't they? I mean, it's, it's like Sapphire has these telekinetic and psychic powers, and Steel sort of is a bit more pragmatic, isn't he? Mm. He's very much he's very much there to sort the problem out and deal he's with it. He's the problem. logical... He's, mm. he's, the, he's the blunt instrument to a certain yeah. extent. So do uh, we know anything about transuranic heavy elements? We're not used where there is life. Do we know yes, what they, they are? Yes, and... they are unreliable, apparently, aren't they? Ah. Because in the first episode, um, they're talking about how many elements they are, and mm. um, David McCullum corrects him, says, no, it's not that number. It's this. Mm. The transuranics are highly mm. unreliable. Sapphire isn't an element. Sapphire yeah. is, is a, it's is gems, a gemstone, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. I, I never quite understood what the, the chemistry of sapphire and steel was. Actually. I don't think PJ Hammond did either, to be mm. fair. Just sounded um, good. Armpit and elbow have been assigned. It's not the same. <laughs> Arse from their elbow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think PJ... PJ said he created the characters, but he mm. did not know where they came from. No. And I think that's almost a sort of... That screams of Doctor Who to a mm. certain extent, doesn't it? We've created this mysterious person that travels through time mm. with his granddaughter, um, but we know nothing of his background. But this is very much them. But that's nice. I think we shouldn't know everything about Sapphire and Steel. I think that would ruin it if we knew everything about Sapphire and Steel because that takes a certain bit of a magic and expectation mm. away from what they can do. But basically, if something starts to get a bit creepy and weird and wrong, these two tend to just pop into existence in your living room or your your wherever you happen to be. And they are basically a statuesque blonde lady in a blue dress or some sort of blue outfit and a rather grim-looking man in a purdy cut. <laughs> purdy cut, yeah. In a, in a grey, in a grey, grey steel suit. <laughs> the explanation we get given, which I like, is not where we break into time. It's mm. where time finds a weakness yes. in today and mm. breaks through and takes things that it wants. And I liked the idea that he's turned it the other way up, whereas mm. we're not capable of time travel, mm. so we can't break into time. But time can break into us and mm. take what it wants. Mm. And, it's, and the time elements aren't particularly nice. There are sort of malevolent entities malevolent. out there. Malevolent. Out. <laughs> I wish it was. <laughs> malevolent entities out there that basically want to consume life or people or yeah. time or whatever that is. And they are being combated by these mysterious powers, you know, sapphire, silver, gold, lead, whatever. So in the first series, and um, with the one with the children, happy ending family reunited often these places are old places aren't they but then in the second series uh, this is the longest of the stories this is eight episodes it features only sapphire and steel you don't get any of the other peripheral characters coming in and this is the one that was from a frustration point of view this is the one that was completely and utterly interrupted by the itv strike in oh, 1979 yes, yes it so, was. and we were yes. left we were left on a particular cliffhanger for three months <laughs> That's probably where my nightmares come from, then. <laughs> um, I have an absolutely horrid nightmare of a, a soldier walking down a country lane, whistling, pack up your travels and your old kit bag, and just disappearing. And just... Well, we are introduced to a ghost hunter, aren't we? We, we arrive Mr. at a railway Tully. station. He's lovely. I like Mr. Tully. Mr. Tully. Who's played by... Um, who plays Tully? Oh, I, I'm so glad you asked me that question because I wasn't ready for it. I was relying on your copious notes there. Hold on. I was, and that's the only thing I haven't written down. <laughs> so I, he's down. one of those actors who actually, I, I've, I tried to remember his name every single episode and I'd forgotten it. I don't know whether that's a Sapphire and Steel thing. <laughs> ah, there you go, you see. But, but his, 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 for some reason, his, his name, it, it just it won't stick. It will not stick. No, he's one of these voice. He's one of these faces that appears on a regular basis in sixties and seventies television. He turns up in a, a couple of the Bond films, actually, mm. as a, as, a, as a, an operative in the background. Gerald James. Gerald James as George. There Stolling, we go. Yes. Yeah. Who is a ghost hunter? Who is in this railway station because there have been hauntings, there have been sightings, and uh, he is there with his his sandwiches and his and his, oh, his famous sandwiches, his yes. tape recorder. Order, and he is basically trying to communicate because he's slightly psychic, isn't he? He's a slightly psychic um, uh, and slightly. Uh, he's a lonely. He he I think he thinks he is, but he's, mm. he's he thinks he's he's helping the spirits, mm. doesn't he? Mm. But he's, unfortunately, unbeknown to him, he's probably opened the the fabric at that yeah. point to let something dark in. 
Well, he's a, he's a quite lonely man. He's a he's a very religious man. He has a cat. Yes. yes. And quite devout in his own way. And basically, he is about. Well, he's he's not going to come out of it well, is he? Let's be honest. <laughs> yes. Let's just say his end is hastened. So yes. Speak. Certainly, in the first instance, the whole of the the motivation for these characters is they are they are motivated by resentment. They are. It transpires that the characters in this. Uh, the various soldiers and airmen and what and uh, submariners that we get to meet, I suppose, in the in the course of the eight episodes, they all died by mistake or wrongly or in a in a situation where they shouldn't really have been there, or the, they were on an aeroplane they shouldn't have been on, or they were up on the front line and they were accidentally killed after the armistice had been signed, and and they have managed to be resurrected by this malevolent force because of their. Anger and angst. Yes, there's a lot of resentment for being dead. They can see the people alive and they are jealous Mm. of them and it's making them angry. And so this force has made a deal with them. There's nothing religious. I have to say there's no religious overtones here because... Oh, no, no. It's just that Tully Tully is quite devout. Oh, yeah. No, but what I mean was when when Tully tries to rationalise things about Mm. asking, well, does the soul go on? Mm. And... um, his balloon is popped by Sapphire, who goes, mm. well, no, there's a entity of some kind that mm. goes on, but it's not anything that we can possibly explain to you for you to understand. It, is, mm. it isn't a soul. There, there's no such thing as a soul. And he looks very crestfallen because all of a sudden, this world that he's built up and understood mm. has suddenly just disappeared. Hmm. I have to say, with that, I thought that was lovely because it it was so open-ended. I'm not going to give you an explanation. I'm going to give you a little tidbit because there's Hmm. that wonderful thing where um, Steele says says to Sapphire, go ahead, tell him this much. And it's that small, (laughs) this much. We're not going to tell you who the hell we are. We're going to tell you this little shred. And that little shred is a very good way of getting out of having to give full background on these characters mm. and what they do and what they are there for yes yeah. it's, uh, it's it's kind of iconic this because this this battered knackered presumably closed down railway station is populated i keep thinking of it as a a three-hander I, I i still even having watched it over the last couple of days i still think of it as it's a three-hander you kind of forget that the soldier and the airman are there but they yeah. feature. I mean, they are. I mean, maybe it's because they're ghosts. I don't know. But it's um, <laughs> they are in the storyline, and they are obviously an important part of the story. But it really, the core of this story is about the relationship between Sapphire Steel and this little man, this this paranormal investigator, and <laughs> and the interactions between them. And they they do this sort of dance through the eight episodes, and it, it's quite mesmerising in its way. How the the various strands sort of rise and fall and intertwine and break apart and come back together again. It does make it a quite fascinating piece of television. The unnerving thing is about that is that halfway through, you know how this is going to end. Mm. You suddenly get that, oh, moment. Mm. (laughs) And you think, oh, that's how it's going to end. It's the only way it can end. And, and we kind of like him, and we've been made yeah. to like him. Even, oh. And even Sapphire is made to like him. And, yeah. Uh, I think Steele, to a certain extent, has, as much as he looks at him as a pain in the backside, mm. a person who shouldn't be there, mm. even before he realises he can use him as a bargaining chip, mm. I think he's. I think the moment Steele gives him a little bit of credit is when he comes back, mm. because they lose two weeks, don't they? Yes. And... He or comes days, back, yeah. yeah, twelve days. Sorry, yeah. mm. and he actually comes back to see if they're all right. Mm. And I think Steele begrudgingly gives him a little, a little bit, this much respect, mm. um, which is a lot for Steele. But mm. yeah, there is a love-hate relationship between him and Steele. Well, he's besotted with Sapphire because of her beauty. Mm. And I think that's her disarming quality. She does that with the children as well, doesn't she? She does that very motheristic thing. Well, she sort of comes across as the very kind one. And then yeah. occasionally when there's nobody else around, again, she becomes very unearthly, very suddenly much more flinty, really, to a certain extent, and much more inhuman. Oh, I like that um, word, flinty. Mm. Mm. Well, we haven't got one called flint, have we? <laughs> <laughs> In like flint. Chip oh, no, stone. Sorry. 
But there are moments where, I mean, they are very alien. It is fascinating because I think of this one particularly, of, of the six stories, maybe apart from in the final story, but in, in this story, you actually feel that Sapphire and Steel are actually a bit out of their depth in this one. You think they're they going to lose? You really think? They are beaten at every turn right until the, the end of well, the Well, I still the think they're beaten at this one. This, mm. that, that they have to take extreme They have to take managers. a deal, yes, to get out of it at all. Yes. Yeah, and it's more of a deal to protect themselves, I think, than it is to protect what they're there for or to mm. prevent what they're there for. And I think the realisation in the end is it's, it's all or nothing. If we mm. don't do this, it's the end of us. There's nothing mm. we can do. The entity is one. Time is one. And beats them on, on several occasions. They are pretty much out of it. I mean, the, yeah. the entity itself, this this darkness, as it's referred to, manages to completely possess Joanna Lumley, the sapphire, at one point, and her eyes go completely black. Oh, and yes. It, when it, and it's using her eyes to see through, to communicate through, and it says it could take her mind, it could take her eyes like that. It could they boom, and she'd be gone. And there's another moment when. Steel is transported to the barbed wire of the First World War and he's hanging on the, the barbed wire. And again, he's lost. And in fact, that sequence goes on forever. Yeah. I have the feeling that's where we had the three-month break. I, I seem to remember you know, he, he was actually on this blooming wire for three months in terms <laughs> of my childish brain, my, my 15-year-old brain. It was kind of like, what? And... It was really quite weird because Sapphire and Steel at that stage was very grown-up telly, but it didn't explain itself. And people were starting to say, I don't understand this, I don't understand this, because they weren't explaining every single bit of what was going on. And I think that actually, I, I, did they repeat it from the beginning or did they just pick up the story when ITV came back? Did they start again? Because I can't imagine how you could make any sense of it at all if you only saw a couple of episodes I think, if memory serves me right, uh, I'm trying to look it up as we, as we speak, I mm. think they started that particular story again. Mm. You can't play that off. Um, if, if they did, didn't did do that, then I think, mm. they, they, um, I think they've lost their audience mm. if they didn't do that. I mean, you can sometimes... I mean, I can sometimes forget the beginning of an episode by the end of an episode of, of anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just age, Martin. No, no, no I've, I've, been, I've always had that. No, it's... You start watching a film and you think, I don't remember any of this. And it's a film that you're really familiar with, but the first 10 minutes you think, I don't remember any of this. No, so um, it's a complicated idea. It's a, it's a fundamentally strongly written ghost story when all's said and done. And it's a ghost story, like you say, at 8, in the, eight o'clock in the evening. <laughs> it's a ghost story with a lot of MacGuffins in it. Hmm. And I think one of the biggest MacGuffins there is safety hmm. and feeling safe and thinking... Hmm. Well, it's all going to end up well in the end because mm. TV programmes don't end up with things going horribly mm. wrong at the end of them. Mm. And I think you're thinking, well, this is one entity. There's three of them there now. They'll mm. they'll be able to deal with it. And I think PJ's very good at stacking reverse odds mm. and then going, it's not always as it looks. It's no. not always as it looks. And you say, yeah, it's it's on several levels. We have the ghosts, we have mm. the Tully story, mm. and then we have the building itself. Because mm. the the building is is made up of a hotel, it's made up of a, a, a railway station, mm. and there's and there's that interesting bridge, mm. and the bridge is the metaphor for mm. something coming across from the other mm. side, and it's even explained in the opening of the first part of part one. Mm. He goes to, "Are you from the other side?" Hmm. Yes, I'm from the down platform. That's <laughs> <laughs> wonderfully dryly given yeah. um, by Steele, that line. And I, I always laugh at that line. Are you from the other side? Yes, it's the down platform. We also get the tragic backstory of the soldier. Who, who's? It becomes quite a significant plot point that we have to find out who he is. Uh, yeah. And over the course of a number of episodes, we eventually peel away that onion and we find out he was... I keep thinking he's called Stuart Pierce. I don't know why. Is that, is that some sort of footballing thing? I can't remember. I, uh, no, Pierce. I, I can never remember his... I know his name's Pierce, but I can't mm. remember. And then you begin to resent him as well. Even though he has a sad story, you begin mm. to resent him mm. after a while because you say to yourself, look, yeah, I'm sorry you've gone through this. Mm. 
But are we going to reverse it all for mm. all the millions that were killed? Mm. All the tens of thousands that were killed mm. wrongly? Because war is a wrong thing, etc. We won't go into the aspects of that. But this is one individual. So where is this entity going to stop with resurrecting the other people? But we get a kind of flashback to the, the, the very poignant backstory, which is played through Joanna Lumley in the, the dress of the, the women uh, the, you know, of, the, oh, yes. of that era. And, she, and, and so she becomes possessed by the school teacher. The school teacher who seemed to, there seemed to be something going on between her. Oh, he, and, has a, he has a crush hmm. on him, so I can only presume that he was like 16 or 17 and lied about his age to go yes. to war. Mm. and um, she thought he was very brave and mm. it was a sort of yeah you can and, imagine a small he, country school but he believed there was actually some sort of future between him and the school teacher yeah. and, and the older woman and the younger man thing which is um which is sort of touched on in it but it becomes i mean considering I, again this is studio videotape and it's a, a set the way it's suddenly lit and suddenly the sound, you do get that smell of spring. You know, they're, yes. they're constantly talking about Easter. You know, Easter tide is coming, and 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 the, and the smell of the flowers. And actually, I I was watching this yesterday, thinking it really comes off the screen that you really sense that you've that's been transported a, yeah, to that, which is which is fascinating writing, fascinating performance, fascinating direction. But it's I mean, it's uh, directors are David Foster and Sean O'Riordan, I believe. Uh, yes, they, they he was also split. producer as well, isn't mm. he, for the entire mm. run of Sapphire and Steel? It's that, they, there's that it, moment on the platform, isn't it, where the, mm. the the flowers come alive and everything is just drab in the background mm. still, but the flowers there it mm. almost jumps out the screen, and you can, mm. yeah, as you say, the the perfume is almost coming through the screen at mm. you. It's a kind of magical. It's one of those things I sometimes have to. I feel I have to defend multi-camera studio television to people quite often, mm. and it's one of those things where you kind of think. I don't think it could have been done better. No, it, I, I it, agree it with you. Really, I mean, it's obviously the skill of what was being done, and I know that. I mean, this is actually an ITC production, isn't it? Or is it? Or is no, it no, just, this is just, an just ATV. owned? But it's but, owned yeah. by ITC still. Isn't yes, it's still. It? Yeah. I, I think it's ATV after Lou Grade sold it, isn't it? Because uh, this, this is really the arse end before it became central and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, before do, the, do, the I think actually out, Sapphire yeah. and Steel does survive the switch to central, doesn't it? Or at least it gets put out under. Central's yeah, I think it banner. was one of those programs on the shelf jobs. It was ATV went up as far as they could, and there was only mm. one episode to do, and that was the mm. last one. Mm. And they thought, oh, well, let's just bring closure to it. Hmm. Because all the all the actors were under contract anyway, hmm. so it was in place. It's just a um, central stuff. McCallum's the quite the coup, isn't he? Really, when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, considering uh, you know he'd been huge in the Man from Uncle in the sixties, and obviously was working a lot in American television, and was was a film star by all. Oh, over. absolutely, and they brought brought him back over here, and to do you know basically what was a studio drama for however many months it took to film them, is quite the coup. It really is, you know. I mean, I, I think that, in many ways, is surprising. You almost feel, why is he doing it? And yet he obviously loved it. He obviously... He, he, he's never talked down about Sapphire and Steel at all. He's, he's no, he hasn't. He's always yeah. seemed very... Oh, quite enthusiastic about mm. Sapphire and Steel. Admittedly, when they talk with him in the documentary, mm. you can see, because he's done so much work... Mm that his memory is is not so sharp on Sapphire mm. and Steel because it is just a little bit of bit of work yeah. for him. But yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a blip. It, well, I say not a blip, but it's a very small part of a very yeah. long, long career. And it, yeah. it, it was enough to bring him back across the Atlantic mm. to do something like this. Mm. And I would have been blown away reading the script mm. for the second story. Mm. I really would have gone, this has got so much possibility. Mm. But it would have been so easy to get wrong, wouldn't it? That's the interesting thing about yeah. it. I mean, there is, it shows the power. I mean, again, you get this in the old ghost stories for Christmas and what have you. It shows the power that sound effects, music, and proper lighting can serve a story oh, incredibly Cyril well. Cyril Hornadale's music mm. is just evocative, really is. It's that twanging, isn't it? Mm. Uh, the echoes mm. and the use of sound, the, echo, the the distortion of being underwater mm. when they're in the corridor of the hotel mm. or where he sat down and he's the RAF pilot in the high altitude mm. 
plane. It's mm-hmm. you follow it. You follow it. it you do. It doesn't let it down. It, the music doesn't become too overwhelming, mm. and it's not always having to signpost you to say you have to be scared here. Mm. You have to be building up the tension here. Well, there's a whole sequence, isn't there, which is basically supposed to be deep, deep down in a submarine. And again, you, you're you're taken there. The sound design on this is actually oh, phenomenal. Yeah. It's that really. metallic echo, isn't there? Mm. And the lights are brought right down, and mm. they're in the corner. They are literally in the corner of of, mm. of the corridor, aren't they? Mm. And and it's so tightly shot mm. and interwound by that faint echo and that clanging of machinery in the background. And that horrible, and I I hate that horrible metallic echo on their voice, Mm. as if we're listening from the outside in, putting your ear to the the Mm. wall of the submarine. You can hear the voices, Mm. but you can't reach in and save them. I think as a viewer, as a child, when you were watching it, you know that bit where the the entity possesses Sapphire and you get the treatment on Joanna Lumley's voice? That must have been shocking. Because yes. yeah, yeah. The, the, our, our lovable heroes, who have always been sweetness and light, or certainly she has been sweetness and light throughout, at that point, around about 12 episodes, suddenly is possessed by this demonic, monstrous... And again, incredible performance, because you, you really get it. You really get that ice-cold fury, if you like, well, this uh, is coming the thing out in that performance. Joanna Lum- this is Joanna Lumley's story. Mm. She has so many characters... But yet she's just sapphire. But in this, she's so many facets. Mm. She's the clairvoyant. She's the portal, if mm. you like, for the entity. When they have that abortive clairvoyant uh, sitting mm. and, and they they create, well, they get Mr. Tully to create the seance, don't mm. they? That's and it goes totally out and they break the circle. And it gets totally out of hand. Which, again, is, is fascinating when you think about... Because at that time, things like seances were... They were frowned upon very much if they were on television. And this is, again, 8 o'clock in the evening. This is before we had things like watersheds. But but you think about what was happening on the Omega Factor, uh, yeah. the same sort of era, and how that was getting sort of questions asked, you know, about the sort of stuff you should be doing in dramas and things like that so yeah it's it's really quite intense and then what gets me about it again this is the beauty of the production the design the lighting everything like that is did you not really get it when you know when they have been put to sleep for 12 days and the entity wins and then they come round after the 12 days and it's like all the oppressive atmosphere is gone yeah everything and it was just cobweb it was yeah. the barbed wire's gone. He's stuck behind the cobweb. He's not actually on the cobweb. He's behind the cobweb. And but just turning up the lights and yeah. suddenly, and a little bit of sound ambience, you know, lights. Yeah. And it's suddenly it's a song fresh, in the fresh, beautiful morning. And yeah. it's really, it's just really interesting from a production point of view how that that switches purely by what they're doing. That craft of the of what was being done in the studio which again it's a lost art now isn't it when you think about it absolutely that, that kind of studio drama just it couldn't i don't think it could be done anymore so we're moving into the end game of this episode or this story yeah and basically what happens is that it becomes apparent that the only way that they can satisfy this entity is for well, to do a deal with the devil, isn't it, really? Yes, it's basically to feed its necessity for some more disruption, mm. time, and some more heavy resentment. They want mm. It's feeding on resentment and hate, and it will want to... Well, our characters have to give, them, give it something to feed its appetite. To eat. They yes. will keep it happy, will make mm. it go away, and not mm. feed on the eternal dead, if you like. Mm. Well, it's it's again, the argument is that, oh, yeah, you've got these whining people who just think, oh, it's a bit sad that I died on the wrong day or in the wrong time and everything like yeah. that. We've got some proper meat for you here, mate. We can give, <laughs> yes. you, we can give yeah. you something that you can chew on forever because we have uh, basically right in the beginning of the first episode, we find oh, out. Oh, how old George, he's going to live for, George Tully, who is strangely yes. enough and worryingly the age I am now. <laughs> that's how he's going to live how long he's going to live but that's five years in the future this is the thing when i first watched this and it was a question as a nine-year-old i still asked myself as a nine-year-old why are they discussing his expectation of life Mm. why is that relevant Mm. and pj always puts these little breadcrumbs down really early on in anything that he writes Mm. 
that here is the conclusion to the story. Yes. And it's in the first 10 minutes. Yes. First 10, 15 minutes. And PJ always does that. He will put the conclusion of the story bang smack in front of you for you to see. Do you not uh, feel there's something about that era's television, though, that because I, I find myself thinking, well, Tully in this story is five years younger than I am, and I don't feel that I look the same age. Uh, no, this is the old thing, isn't it, of looking at pictures of your your relatives who are the same age as you are now and going, God, don't they look old? Yeah. Don't they look, because of the hairstyle, because of the appearance, because of the clothing. clothing yeah. And I think with Tully, it's he would have taken his... He was a single male that lived on his own with his cat. Mm. The only influence he would have had for dressing would have been mm. his parents, mm. who would have been of that generation during yes. the war mm. and slightly beforehand. So mm. he, that's he's never broken out of that, and he, he mm. never seems to break out of that. He desperately wants to do something different, and his way of doing something different is the ghost hunting, mm. because his life is mundane. His life mm. is just the same old routine every day he makes sandwiches for himself mm. he has a tartan flask mm. <laughs> and mm. if he wasn't at that railway station chasing ghosts forgive the he'd be sat at the end of the platform taking numbers of the trains yes yeah he's it's just that it, it, i suppose in many ways he is it's the quintessential loser or at least lonely soul he's the lonely soul and lonely souls but, are seen as expendable in this sort of world. I, I, the interesting thing about Tully is y- you get a fundamental sense of his decency. He's a oh, decent yes. human being. And never more so, really, because he wa- he wants to help. He really does want to help these ghosts. He wants them to find some sort of peace. He really he feels a, an empathy with them. He feels sorry for them to a certain extent. But there's this, this moment just before he is... Well, let's be honest, brutally honest, he gets sacrificed by steel to the entity. Well, this, this is the thing. Uh, uh, um, just to pick up what you just said there, sorry to interrupt mm. them. But this is the thing, he wants to help. And mm. this is the thing, Steel identifies that he wants to help mm. all the way through the story. But Steel being not of this world, shall we say, mm. and because Tully says... Yeah, I want to help. I want to make them be happy, give them conclusion. Mm. But he doesn't put caveats on it. Mm. So as far as Steele is concerned, he's willing to do anything. Mm. Well, Steele is pragmatic, and basically he he needs a warm body, and that happens to be the warm body that's nearby, really, to a certain extent. But I think Tully sets himself up for it by not putting stipulates on... on By not just running away on the first day and, Ah, get out of here, it's too creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Run away, run away, run away. He'd probably end up in that petrol station. He's, he's not a lucky yeah. man. <laughs> he's not a lucky man. <laughs> but the what gets me, though, is, is there is this scene where basically uh, Sapphire is somewhat disgusted by Steel and, and the deal he's making. Yeah. Which is, is held back and held back and held back until he admits it. But he then comes down the stairs, doesn't he, where he's been sent to wait on the stairs. Oh, that's and he comes a horrible back, moment, isn't and it? And he has that moment. And you know he knows. We know yeah. he knows. Steel knows he knows. Uh, we actually assume that he overheard the conversation. I'm not entirely sure that's the case. I, which think, is where it's cause, I think it's because Steele's being nice to him. And there's also that psychic, possibly, thing going yeah. on as well. Because yeah. he can hear the voices sometimes. That's the strange yes. thing about Tully's character. So he kind of, he knows what's going to be done to him. And, you know, the resentment of that lost five years. Because he basically, he disappears up the stairs. And the next thing you hear is this dreadful scream. God, God awful scream, isn't it? And it's, it's... And you All happens off screen. You don't see it. It's, you no. just see the bridge. And that's the worst thing. You never see... You never see anything like that. It's it's the Quatermass thing, is it, with the human pulp, isn't it? Yeah. But it's uh, but this, you just do not see it. And it's that scream. Mm. And it's just... And he's co- presumably in some horrible, disgustingly vile way, he's consumed by this entity and peace is restored to the um, the station. All the ghosts have gone. All the uh, the flowers are growing again. What's what's the... Pa- is it the passion flowers? And, um, the, yes, it is. Mm. Yeah, the Pasque flowers. Pasque. And you can you can hear the traffic in the background mm. again because in the beginning you can hear traffic in the background. Mm. And you hear the traffic, but there is a sense of guilt, mm. and I think Steele feels very guilty until he does his little jump. 
Yeah, that's the thing that I was about to say to you because Sapphire sort of goes through a door and does her vanishing thing and what have you, and that's she's she's off back to wherever their other realm is. Yeah, but uh, you see Steel sort of jog running down. Down well, the, he walks the whole down length the platform, of the platform. And he suddenly just jumps, he just jumps in the yeah. air and disappears, and it's kind of like, yay! <laughs> Killed one. Well, Whoop. <laughs> I, I think it's because he's free of it all going horribly mm. wrong, because there were so many times that those but, two were close to being all consumed. What I'm saying is that it feels there's almost a jubilation in that. Yeah. That we're, we're out of here. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So that's your favourite. Of, of the six. It's my scariest of them. Um, right. I mean, the other one is the photographs, the mm. man with no face, mm. mainly because there's a little bit of a draw. From the photographs, some of them are taken from the Dorset Museum, and I recognise some of them. Ah, okay. See, what I gets me about Sapphire and Steel is that a lot of the, the places are quite shabby and mundane and ordinary. They're every but, day, aren't they? But what yeah. gets I remember very vividly is that having watched the, the house one, having watched the station one, having been bamboozled a bit through the pod on the roof one mm. when it got to the the cd semi prostitute um <laughs> character that's really well yes that's really well put. i was thinking how is he gonna highlight the fact yeah. that what are, the character that we're rooting for is a lady yeah. of the night well it's just that it suddenly felt a bit drab and ordinary it was just oh, it's yeah. a grossy little flat you know and yet that somehow managed to be again one of the most sort of memorable stories they did really you know. but that's the power of pj isn't it this is something normal by the mm. way this is what's lurking in the shadows mm. so um on the whole as a piece of oh. drama yes um because we are sort of running out of time really basically filmed on one impressive set mm-hmm. um you think it holds up i think it i think it holds up with the exception of, I would say, the modern day one with the something nasty in the nursery, mm. not a particular favourite of mine. Mm. The rest of them hold up really well. Even the one that PJ hates, mm. uh, the Doctor McDee story, mm. he doesn't particularly like that. But I think it's not right. bad that one. But I, I, I'm particularly taken by that creating of immediate unease in a studio setting. I think that is a very impressive. Well, you thing. can create claustrophobia so much easier. Mm within that, that, that confined space. Mm. Uh, I think that the ending of the entire run is mm. wholly appropriate, really appropriate. And that mm. that last scene, that surreal scene of the window mm. is fantastic. Uh, that really says to you, wow, there's no way on earth mm. they can get out of that. And the cliffhangers, you feel the cliffhangers still work? Yeah, as, I do. As a, that's the thing that got me about it. As an eight-parter, there are seven incredible cliffhangers, oh, yes. which really make you want to watch the next one. It, it's it's very um, it's very Moorish television, isn't it? You can't mm. really just go, especially now it is available on, on disc. You really think, oh, shall I wait till? No, I'm going to watch the next one. <laughs> it's, it's, that's that's it. Uh, it's compelling, isn't it? Yeah, would you would you buy an HD copy of this because it's not available in HD? Do you think it would uh, make any difference to it, I, or would it spoil it slightly? Do you think? No, I don't know. I mean, there are interesting moments when you start watching DVDs of of things that you didn't ever notice when they're things on television. It's like the um, the other end of the tunnel is obviously just a shape. <laughs> well, that's Dave, that. That was the only thing. What was he said? David McCullen said in the documentary that was the only idea I ever brought to the program was by putting the the shape of the end of the tunnel in. <laughs> Which I don't believe for one minute because he doesn't strike me as that kind of person. He strikes no. me. I, he strikes me as the man that would sit down with PJ and have a damn good chat mm. because I think both of them actually got PJ's idea. Mm. I think most of the production team, Sean or Rudin, almost certainly got it, mm. and I think they admired the way that PJ crafted because this is a craft. Yeah. This is a crafted product. It's not run of the mill. I often think that certain things don't really benefit from being too upscaled. I mean, yeah. I, I don't even think it would benefit from a remake. I think it, it's no, I kind think of it's... perfect as it is, as yeah. a piece of videotape television. I don't really think that suddenly being able to get it on Blu-ray would actually necessarily add anything to it. The interesting thing to me, and, and the one thing that slightly takes points off for Sapphire and Steel for me, and it's really very, very slight, is... The titles do look cheap and nasty. 
<laughs> in in this in a place. I mean, the, far, no. To be fair, away. the main the main yeah. um, the main title sequence is is iconic, and you know, with the 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 spinning sort of grid stuff and the and the balls of fire coming towards you. That's yeah, okay, and and the and the doom laden voice, which is but it's the rollable rollerboard. Star. Well, it's that, yeah. it's that opening caption when you get the wobbly thing across the star field with the David McCallum yeah. and Joanna Lumley in. It for some reason, even for its time, it looks shonky. Oh yes, but it, I, I like it. To, oh, see, I disagree. I, I like it because it's just lulled you into total false sense of security because mm. your expectations are highly lowered mm. when you see something like that, and then when mm. you see the production itself, it's mm. like. Exactly as you say there. This title sequence does not go with the program. Mm. But again, that's that's a, well, another production idea. But what? Well, no money. No money. I should imagine. Well, it? we've been saying quite for a long time that uh, when you watch Death in Paradise, you know, you've, here's the grisly murder, and then jaunty, 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 jaunty song. You know, it's um, <laughs> it, sometimes yeah. the title sequence, and I, I imagine that sometimes. The, the graphic designer just got this right. The series is about this, and you go, Oh, crikey! Oh, uh, so you do something, and it, but the actual program doesn't really sit well with some of the you know, how, how in that case, as a designer, how would you how would you frame that? I'm I just it's interesting now because it's so iconic and people associate it with it, but actually, I don't think Sapphire and Steel would would suffer particularly by just taking that little opening caption off. It's an interesting way of bracketing the recap from the previous episode, which is, yeah. you know, that's that's an interesting thing. But I, you can't speak for the casual viewer, but you can kind of imagine people looking at that and going, that's shonky and immediately switching off. Yeah. And I actually feel that maybe nowadays you would actually start the programme and maybe just they would come up as captions, you know, David McCallum, Joanna Lumley. Sapphire and Steel, a bit like they did with Morse later on. Yeah. It would be much more, it'd be much more subtle. And I don't think, I, I feel sometimes they're signposting, this is wacky and outer spacey, or this is, you know. <laughs> and and sometimes yes. I felt, because uh, again, late 70s, I genuinely don't think people really knew how to do science fiction. I mean, Star no. Wars had come in, so this was, it was trying to make it Star Warsy. Yeah, to a so certain extent. ATV isn't exactly known for its its Subtlety. sci-fi either, either. Yeah. And a, a, ATV, um, AT, it was made in Birmingham. It's ATV mm. Land. It was known mm. as, wasn't it? They were making programs that that, that yeah. you know, uh, uh, tis was and things like yeah. that, weren't they? It, and I, I, I just feel that's one small mistake, and it, and it's not crossroads. Yeah, <laughs> but of course the music is still powerful and, and oh, like I say that yeah. opening sequence itself is powerful so I, I just I don't know it's just I feel that you know how people can be quite judgy about old telly yeah it's just like the first thing you see you know if you do you, you know Doctor Who and the Crotons yes I, I love the Crotons I think the Crotons is amazing I first saw it in the Five Faces and I just I love that as a piece of television because I remember watching it for the first time and being blown away by the fact I could watch Troughton in black and white on my television. And the thing about it is, is that opening shot is where the doors stick. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. for some people, that's what they see and that's all they'll ever see. They just say, oh, this is rubbish because that door stuck. They don't see the rest of it. And I feel quite often if you were trying to introduce Sapphire and Steel to somebody, the first thing they see is that wobbly type moving across the star field and they must go oh well this is crap and that's a shame because they would be missing out on something to be honest that is quite magnificent and i feel that all of sapphire and steel is quite magnificent and uh, yeah it sh should be applauded absolutely. so um, absolutely do you have anything final you wanted to say pj hammond mm. is fantastic <laughs> thank you for giving me nightmares for my in entire life in fact i was reminded today of another nightmare which was the Ugly Wuggly People from the Enchanted Castle, well, which go. is which is a, another children's program. Uh, but yes, PJ Hammond, thank you for giving me sleepless childhood memories, sleepless nights of childhood memories. I love this series, and I'm still always drawn to that one particular storyline of the railway station. Fabulous. We haven't even touched upon that strange shot where you just see her face mangled. Oh yeah, yeah, like they've got Which, spaghetti all slapped uh, in her face. Uh, that's because that is I, I, again the stuff of nightmares. And the mouldy sandwiches. Oh, the mouldy sandwiches. Yeah. Let's face it. If if you can terrify the nation with a mouldy sandwich in a bit of you know, cling <laughs> film, you're doing something you're doing right. Doing something okay. right. Yeah. 
Thank you very much for your time today, it's Warren. Been a That's pleasure. Been fabulous. You. I hope you enjoyed it. And I, I hope enjoyed it. Well, don't have nightmares. You take care. <laughs> and yourself. Thank you. As we pack him off to whichever dimension he comes from, many thanks to Warren Cummings for crossing the time barriers today. You can hear more of Warren each month via his podcast, A Raspberry Mivy and A Foot Long Dog. Thanks to everyone at Fab Radio International for what they do, and thanks to you for listening. As ever, I have been Martin. This has been Vision on Sound. Goodbye for now, and take care. (laughs) 